Welcome to Connect with Success with Dr. Lynette Scatiswatilla, where we help connect you with knowledge. Our mission is to lead you to a new and exciting way of understanding, responding to, and helping all those with autism. We hope to expand your thinking about how to best serve these amazing people and how to support you in your daily struggles and celebrations. Welcome everyone to episode three of Connect with Success, a podcast built around the success approach, the person who coined it, Dr. Lynette Scott-Tiswatilla, and the people who use it and benefit from it every day. In today's episode, Dr. Lynette is going to discuss another one of the most basic components of helping a child or adult with autism. She's going to give it a name that you may or may not have heard before in the field of autism. My name is Dr. Richard Smith, and I'll be facilitating our discussion about this basic idea that we should help encourage at all times for those in our life with autism. So, Lynette, what is our term that we're going to share for this episode? Today, our term is sense-making. So, what is sense-making? Uh, sense-making, it's, it's kind of a simple concept, but we don't always talk about it. Uh, basically, sense-making is the process through which we learn. Um, or we come to understand or comprehend something. Um, it's how we arrive at an understanding of people or things, events, experiences, and how we make sense of what's going on around us and what's going on within us. And so it's a combination of both like auditory and visual cues and just trying to, to put it all the, the, those pieces together, right? Yeah, you're kind of talking a bit about how it all works, and um, it does have those components. It has components of sensation, um, and it really relies a lot on awareness. Like, you can't make sense of something if you're not aware of it, and that is where things like auditory or tactile or visual information come into play. So when we talk about uh, processing information or sensation, um, we have to recognize that when the brain does that, which is quite natural and normal, by the way, for the brain to do, um, it will inform our awareness centers of our brain. It will inform us. These senses will inform us that something's going on we have to pay attention to. And as we become aware of it, um, we sort of go through this circular process and uh, it's actually in the field of Gestalt therapy, Gestalt psychotherapy specifically, um, there's this circular process of awareness, they call it, or the experience of a, an awareness experience. And what happens in this uh, sort of circular process is we, we're taking in that information, like you talked about, the sensation, and something kind of grabs us and we become aware of it and we, we put a name to it. Um, and then we sort of move from being aware of it to kind of wrapping our brain around it and getting in contact with it, we say. And when we come in contact with something, we have sense-making about it. And I know that's a lot of words to describe something very simple, but it's kind of a heady, a heady idea, a heady topic. Um, it's kind of theoretical, if you will. But those are just the words to describe it. The actual experience of sense-making is internal, and it's natural, and it's organic. And uh, it's important for us to know how to recognize it and how to help kids through that sense-making process. 
All right, well, let's jump into this episode because it sounds like we've got a great one for you today. So, Lynette, we were talking about uh, the awareness of what sense-making is. Is there anything more to that sense-making process? Yeah, I think if we understand that sense-making is the product, you know, it's, it's the outcome of the experience. Um, when a child's born, they don't come out of the womb already knowing and having a lot of sense about their world. They slowly evolve to understanding um, through their experiences. So, um, you know, at some point when we were young, we uh, at one point in our life experienced, let's say, a sensation of thirst. Okay. And uh, it's a very normal experience. We all have it. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't always register. It's sort of in the background. But as the day goes on, the longer it is between times when you drink and quench yourself. Um, your thirst kind of bubbles up, right? And all of a sudden it moves from like this little something to something that grabs your attention and you focus on it. So there's lots of sensations coming into your body all day long, but this particular sensation bubbled up above all the others and grabbed our focus, sort of our attention. And as it was there, those of us who are old enough to have language put a name to it. And we might've said, ah, I know what that is. That's thirst. And so once we are aware of it and we sort of put this label to it, we can do something about it. We can take action about the thirst and move, in this case, our bodies through space to probably get in contact with a water bottle or a drinking fountain or a cup or something so that we're putting into action sort of the the resolution to our thirst problem. And as we gather our water, and we bring it to our mouth and we take that first thirst quenching gulp, we have contact with the concept of quench. So thirst and quench kind of go together in that moment. And we have understanding of how those two things relate and how we relate to both of them. I have the experience and then I fix the experience. Mm. And we're in contact with that concept of thirst and in this case, quenching. And we take that gulp and then we're over it and we're done. And we don't need any more water. We kind of go on to then the next sensation. Um, but if I said you know, to a toddler, you're thirsty, a toddler who is maybe you know, toddling around at 13, 14, 15 months, something like that, they probably don't understand what thirst is because mm-hmm. it's kind of abstract, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. a sensation, but they might associate a bottle or a tippy cup, sippy cup with um, what mommy shapes then as the concept of thirsty. So this is how we learn. This is how we have sense making through experiences, through sensation, through becoming aware of those sensations and then starting to put labels to them and, and fix or make contact with whatever it is that we are having sense making about. So it's a, it's a lot of words to describe a simple concept, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it makes sense, you know, how, how we make connections to things and how we uh, draw from our experiences and, and trying to make those connections. That's right. And, and uh, in the in Gestalt uh, way of thinking about things, um, some of the greats in the field like Latner, for instance, doing a lot of Gestalt therapy, um, would say that everything and everyone in the environment can somehow be connected. That baby is connected to that mother. The mother is connected to the sippy cup. The sippy cup is connected to the milk or the juice, and the juice is tied back 
to the thirst. Mm -hmm. So this is a really kind of complex idea, but it's so simple when you think about sense-making, you really have connectedness to things and people around you and using that connectedness to achieve something, to make contact with something, to explore or experience something the way it was intended to be used or experienced is the sense-making jewel in all of our existence. Um, and I'm just thinking as, as you were talking, like I remember when my children were younger and they were just getting ready for tummy time, you know, being able to play. And there was always this set of blocks that they enjoyed. And I could tell when they were, you know, wanting to explore, looking at some of these blocks and, you know, just seeing what shapes they were drawn to or what colors mm-hmm. they were drawn to or, you know, what it was that if they kept going back for that white square versus that red triangle and mm-hmm. kind of just observing how they were connecting that play behavior Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's. And when they were doing that, when they were eyeballing these blocks, as you're describing um, in their environment, they became aware of the dimension of it, the feel of it, um, how it looks when it hits the reflection of the light versus when it's in a shadow cast over it, all these little tiny itty bitty minuscule details that together brought them some experience about that block. And as they then approached it and took action to make contact with it, they realized that it, was, um, it wasn't static. If they pushed it or tipped it or kicked it, it moved, it had movement properties. And then eventually they learned that two things can go together and the block started to be connected to each other in a certain way. And then they learn all sorts of things like balance and eye-hand coordination and gravity and all sorts of things that then start to kick in as a child gets older. So it's a good example. I think blocks is something everyone can relate to. And uh, what I want to emphasize for everyone is it's a normal, beautiful, spontaneous, organic process. It's very subconscious. You don't go around thinking, well, I see a red triangle. And if I tip it a certain way, it's going to be this angle and I'm going to bounce it on that. It's it's not that robotic. Mm-hmm. It's not that heady. It's sort of natural and um, almost subconscious. But experience is um, accumulating in our brains all the time. And that's how associations are built through experience. I'm just thinking one more example, too. You know, I all of my kids have had something that they've enjoyed uh, that brings them comfort and they associate with comfort. You know, I'm thinking like the blankets or a stuffed animal and, and they associate that um, with just feeling good or feeling secure and feeling safe. Mm-hmm. Is that some, mm-hmm. something similar here, right? It is. And, you know, we talk a lot about kids, but um, even people without disabilities, adults, you know, we understand we have sense making about uh, our paycheck. We put in the effort. And within a number of weeks or hours or days, however we're paid, um, something comes back to us that we rely on that's related to, connected to our labor. And so we have sense making about that. And we need that because we also have sense making about economy and uh, the purchasing systems and how you have to purchase food to live and and put um, bills, bills need to get paid and and put out money so that you can live and thrive. And so that's why that paycheck is important. And we have these natural associations and the almost cause and effect, rather the symbiotic relationship that these things rely on each other. These things are connected to each other. And um, that is very natural and normal for every human being. I think what's hard is when there's a disability Mm. on board and some of those processing systems don't work so well. So sense-making can be a struggle. So what does sense-making rely on specifically? 
want to relies on experience and a brain that can process that experience. And it relies on sensation a lot. We talked about the senses informing the brain and helping the brain to become aware of something, something becoming figural that it can then attach a meaning to and make contact with. And so this uh, reliance on awareness and sensation is critical. And it is not to be taken for granted because it's, again, natural in many people, uh, but it's not always so natural in kids with disabilities. Hmm. And does this, um, does everyone process through this cycle and the circle of, of awareness? They should. Um, they're, they're designed to, you know, the, the brain and body are designed to work together so that experiences are meaningful and we can thrive and sustain. Um, so I would say, yes, we all go through the cycle, but sometimes there's blockades in the cycle. And, um, you know, somebody maybe doesn't have good language. And so we might be attaching the concept of thirst or bottle or drink to a child, let's say a toddler. Um, and if they're not grasping the concept, the, the words um, that we're labeling, they may not have a lot of sense making around that sensation of thirst because they miss the tie to the language. So when mommy says, do you want a drink? Or are you thirsty? Or do you want juice? If they're not processing that word, they might have the sensation of thirst. They may have that bodily sensation, but it's not tied or associated um, or connected, as you said earlier. So do people with autism make sense of things then uh, the way others do? Is it the same for everyone in that process uh, in, in terms of having autism? Yes, that's actually a great question. It, it is the same process for everyone, those uh, six or seven steps that we go through from the sensation, something becoming figural or in focus and then becoming aware of it and taking action to get in contact with it. Mm -hmm. those, those steps are very natural and normal for everybody that can process well. But for kids with autism and other sensory processing problems, they get stuck um, and they get stuck rich at various places in this circular process we talk about. Um, so, you know, <laughs> think about if anyone has seen the movie of Rain Man, there is this great scene where um, Dustin Hoffman, who plays Raymond Babbitt, um, is in Vegas. <laughs> and his brother, Charlie Babbitt, um, gets him a date, quote unquote, for uh, the evening. And he's with this date, who is uh, a paid date, we'll just leave it at that, right. um, is in the bar with him. And she's dressed to the nines. And um, she has on as part of her apparel, this uh, chain, this necklace. And uh, in the movie, Raymond is noticing very much so that necklace. And the viewer, the person watching the movie is just kind of seeing him look at it and he's they're they're hearing this woman talk to him and they're kind of picking up that the woman's a little turned off because all Raymond's do it is staring at her jewelry mm -hmm. and isn't making eye contact and it starts to say weird things. <laughs> <laughs> and um it, it's it's comical when you see how they, you know, very artfully relayed this kind of issue in the movie in Hollywood, but it isn't funny at all um, when you think of what it represents. And what it represents is that Raymond was stuck on this cycle of experience. He was stuck on the necklace, mm -hmm. which is a sensory factor. 
It was a human relationship, a human conversation. And what his attention was on was the necklace. And we know this not only because we can watch his eyes and see him looking only at it versus her. But when he goes back upstairs to his brother, Charlie Babbitt, (laughs) Charlie says, how was your date? And he says, shiny, very shiny. (laughs) Right. And so you can tell that what he processed, his takeaway from this lady of the night, if you will, wasn't a relationship, certainly wasn't any bodily relationship. He took away the image or the sensory experience, the sensory association for her necklace, um, which means he probably didn't look at her face, probably didn't look into her eyes, probably didn't really engage with her. Um, And so those limits and how these individuals with autism, adults and children, these limits and how they process sense-making information is so different from how we do. We would look at the person. We would acknowledge the presence. We might even have a conversation depending on the relationship. If it was her sister in the bar that night, the sister might notice the necklace, may even say it's nice, but she wouldn't be totally enamored with it. She'd be able to have the conversation with her sister. So that's a really important difference. So we have to acknowledge that individuals with autism may be stuck on this circular process, the cycle of awareness that we would call it in gestalt terms, um, or this sense-making cycle. And so they need help. They need help to work through where they're stuck. And so if and, and that goes back to last episode when we talked about observing readiness, being able to yeah. observe that they're not ready for that. That's um, right. I always go back to the example. Um, we took our daughter to a birthday party. She's maybe about three or four years old, and it was at an arcade. Mm. And uh, she she walked, she got in the arcade. She knew it was time for the party to begin. Um, but once all the lights started flashing and the sounds started happening, it, it just it, it triggered something in her that – showed me that she wasn't ready to be social in that particular setting. We actually had to remove her from it. So was Mm -hmm. it that, was it, was it this, was it trying to make sense of what was going on in the room to feel safe and she couldn't get past it? Well, I would say that the object of the event was socializing. So mom and dad and the person who threw this gathering, their intention was to make contact with socializing. Mm Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, you have to be able to get through everything that you're exposed to so you can make contact with the people who are supposed to be your social partners. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get past the sensory load, you're not going to see people. You're going to stop at lights and sound. So in that existence, in that instance, your daughter was stuck in sensation Mm. and there's nothing you could do at the moment to talk her through it because you, as someone speaking to her would be just another stimulus. Gotcha. Yeah. Just another source of sound. And that's what we wound up doing. We had to pull her back into the car and kind of talk about what she might see and and what she might experience to try and help her through it. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to bring her back to the car to validate her experience, bring her back like a rewind Mm -hmm. and potentially do over helping her 
to focus on the friend. So one strategy would be, uh, you know, you're going to hear some things that might be loud and you're going to see some things that might be bright. But what we're going to look for is Mary. Let's say Mary is the name of the friend. Right. We're going to use our eyes to find Mary. I will help you. I can help point to her. I can take your hand and bring you to her. I can wave to Mary to come to you. But we're going to think about Mary. And when we meet Mary, when we're close enough that she can hear us, we're going to tell her happy birthday and give her a gift. If it was a birthday party example. And so if you give them, you know, that directive and you support them to actually enact that joining to, in this case, this person named Mary in my little analogy, then they have a focused intent Mm -hmm. and you've already warned them about the sight and sound. Now that's a great outcome if that child can be talked through it cognitively. Mm -hmm. If she can, and your daughter probably can, knowing her, she has what we call cognitive override that can sort of tell her, okay, dad said, think about Mary, think about Mary, think about Mary. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't mean she's not hearing the the sounds and not seeing the sights. She is, but you've given her something, a focal point. Um, And, you know, setting her up to succeed would be minimizing how long she has to endure all that. Mm. And then you can also make a plan. You know, honey, if you can't find Mary fast, you and mom can stay at the door. I will find Mary and give her your gift. And she will be still happy. Like you can compensate and let them know. So just maybe the only expectation that day on her is to go in and hear a sound and see some lights. And that's her experience. You can still pass a gift along and have some well wishes for the birthday girl. It's just not the social contact that it was intended to be. Great strategy. Thank you so much for that. Sure. Uh, So then looking at this, why is it so important for parents and teachers to understand how to help a child with autism to achieve sense-making? Well, I think it's important because they get stuck. They get stuck too often, and they get stuck in ways that we don't. So um, if we're not careful, we become angry. Um, If we're not careful, we become frustrated. Like, just go, give her the gift. How hard can it be, you know, in, in your example? Right. Um. Or, you know, if we're a teacher, just finish your math. Come on, you've got three more. You know this. You know, but if there's a fire alarm that just went off for that child who's trying to finish their math and that resonating sound of the chirping alarm is still bothering their ears, they're not going to be able to make contact with their pencil and the concept of computation for their math problem. They are stuck in sensation because of the the auditory memory pulsing through their ears. Well, the teacher doesn't hear it anymore, but the child does. So we have to understand that these kids get stuck because it explains their behavior. Mm -hmm. And once we understand where they're at in the cycle, we have to join them. We have to join them where they're at, stay with them as long as they need us to, and then help them through it. So in that instance, it might be telling your third grader trying to finish three math problems, I know you're hearing the noise. It's loud. Take one minute, put your hands over your ears, press as hard as you can. And while you're pressing, the sound might be less. And if it is, you can finish your math. If it isn't, you can do it tomorrow. I understand. So just giving them that validation. Yep, you're still hearing it. We don't hear it, but you hear it. Let me help you get rid of it. (laughs) Right. And if nothing else, if I can't help you get rid of it, I'm going to take the demand away from you to perform while you're having it. 
Another interesting thing about sense-making and helping kids go through it and get to it is how it helps them developmentally. So um, actually in, in my class called an introduction to the success approach for parents and caregivers, there is a research study that we talk about and it was done by Siller and Sigmund in 2002. And the study found that caregivers of children with autism who try to maintain their child's spontaneous contact with toys by pointing or showing or commenting had children who later developed superior communication skills measured at one year, 10 years, and 16 years. So just by helping that child stay in contact by pointing to the toy, labeling it, showing, commenting, all those joining things that we do with kids, those children ended up having superior language over the course of 1, 10, and 16 years, which is really phenomenal when you think about it. And that's compared to children who maybe had um, more demands placed on them or more um, directive kind of intervention when it was undemanding language and they were focused on staying in contact versus performing, those children have superior communication skills. It's exciting stuff. Absolutely. Are the parents or teachers you explain this to able to make sense of this? Um, you know, I think they do. I think they do make sense of it, at least in theory. You know, like you said, it's, it's sensible. It, it's logical. It makes sense. Here's the challenge, though. It's not easy to operate this way. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to operate from the perspective of joining somebody else as they're on the journey to sense-making. And so in order to get good at that, we have to sort of disconnect from ourselves mm -hmm. a minute and really look and assess where the child is in the process. And the challenge when we're talking about a child with autism discerning that is it's so different mm -hmm. from where we are. Um, again, the example of Rain Man, the woman with him didn't have a clue that he was looking at her necklace. Mm -hmm. If it was me at the bar with him and I had a necklace on and he looked at it, I would join him, Rich. I would say, Raymond, you see my necklace. I might even say, holding it, kind of jiggling it, it is, and he might say, shiny. And I'd say, yep, it is. I have shiny eyes, too. And what do you think he might do? Look at your eyes. Look at your eyes. Yeah. Check it out. He's into shiny. Why wouldn't he? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And so there you have eye contact. Now, notice I didn't say look at me. I made a comment. I commented on the here and now. Mm -hmm. And that's a real key in Gestalt psychotherapy and Gestalt theory. You know, we're talking a lot about Gestalt. It really comes from the field of psychology, but many people use it, thank goodness, more and more. And a lot of my capstone doctoral work was done around Gestalt theory and autism. And uh, what we know is that if we can join a child, let's say Raymond Babbitt, in his experience of shiny, then we can expand what we do with shiny. 
in this case, transfer it to my eyes. Mm -hmm. That is very different from look at me. You're being rude. Stop staring at my neck or my chest. Stop. Like, do you see the difference in those approaches? Yeah. One is observing where they're at and helping yeah. them to process it. Whereas the other one is more directive and, and, Very much and addressing directive. the behavior. Right. And ex and there's an expectation to stop something. I would rather there be an expectation to do something. A lot of our kids with autism and a lot of our adults with autism are constantly told stop one way or another. They're told to stop. They're inhibited. They're prevented. They're held back. Don't do that. Whatever it is, don't run. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. Don't ask for that. Don't scream. Don't whatever it is. Don't, 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 don't. But by saying my eyes are shiny too, I didn't even tell him to look at me. And I didn't tell him to stop looking at my necklace. I joined him in his awareness of my necklace and gave him the opportunity to comment on it. And what we know about people with autism is they really want to talk about what they're thinking about. Right. <laughs> we know that. And so by joining them and saying, yes, it is shiny, it's silver, or it's 14 karat gold. Isn't that interesting? Well, now I've opened up a whole conversation. Right. And my tactic initially was my eyes are also shiny. And then when he looks, you know, he might say, yes, they are. Or I might say they're shiny and they're brown. And yours are whatever. And I comment. Then, then we're commenting on the here and now. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very central. It's a centerpiece of Gestalt theory. Being in the here and now, very present-centered and sense-making. Those are the, the three factors that really identify Gestalt theory. And if we understand this, we can make use of this awareness process, the sense-making process, and stay present centered till the child understands what we're presenting. It's exciting work. It really is. And, and, you know, you, you speak to the parents too, who instinctually that word stop is because we're, we're feeling protective and we want to mm -hmm. make sure that they're not going to do something that's going to hurt them or inhibit them right. from learning from that process. But the, the whole idea of sense-making is just observing that readiness and using it as that teachable moment. That's right. To bring them into focus. That's right. And if we want them to learn something new to keep them safe, you bring up a good point. Like I think of children running, mm -hmm. you know, we say, stop, stop running, stop. We want them to stop. But if we tell them what to do, it sounds more like try walk. Mm -hmm. I will help you. Let's walk together. That's right. We have walking feet. Let's walk to brother's room. Let's walk to the parking lot, whatever you're doing, you join them. And what you want them to do and model in the process, what you want them to do and guess what they do, what you want them to do. Absolutely. If you don't tell them what else to do, then what their first inclination is, is going to win. So we always say the success approach wins when we reshape something to the outcome that we want. That's better for the child, the greater good of the child, like not running in a parking lot, but autism wins when we do it wrong. And they take off running because we've said things like stop right. <laughs> versus what to do. They can't process. If they could stop, they would stop. Right. So yelling stop doesn't necessarily become effective for some kids, for many kids, if they don't know what else to do. That's great. So how else can I help a child um, that's having difficulty making sense of something? Well, I think we talked about lessening the demand mm -hmm. when they're trying to make sense of something that they're struggling with. 
Um, but we can also make the message brighter or bigger. So if there's a child that, you know, going back to your idea of, of the blocks, Rich, mm -hmm. um, if there's a toddler or any age child that's trying to build something, but let's stick with toddlerhood, um, and you're trying to get them to look at a block or to build a block, um, if the block isn't salient for them, in other words, they're missing that you're holding this block in front of them, you can add something like a, a, a tapping on the block, tapping on a table, tapping it with another block. If it has a jingle component, like some blocks have bells and things in them, you can shake it to make it more salient mm -hmm. for the child. And then it grabs, like you said, that auditory system. It informs the auditory system because the eye is going to go to where the ears hear most often. And in so doing, you're bringing a child to awareness about the block that they might have otherwise missed. And then once their awareness is on it, you can say block, mm. whatever it is you want them to know, square or blue if you're working on colors. But they have to first see it and be aware of it for, to have sense making about it. So increase what is salient about the thing you're trying to expose them to. Does that make sense? Oh, it's wonderful advice. I, I it, it totally makes sense. Absolutely. And we've talked so much about sense making. Uh, so much so that it actually makes sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that a good outcome? <laughs> Join the cast from Connect with Success for our first ever virtual live event for Autism Awareness Month on Saturday, April 17th, 2021. We will be highlighting those who have been champions of the success approach, talking to community partners, hearing some special stories of those impacted by the success approach, and a few more surprises up our sleeves. Be sure to follow the Success Approach for Autism Facebook page for more information about how you can join this highly anticipated autism event. So this week's challenge for everybody out there listening is to look for signs of where your loved one might be getting stuck in their cycle of awareness. Look for them getting stuck in sensation. Look for them maybe getting stuck in action where they can't stop something once they start. And try to join them so that they can complete the cycle and actually achieve sense-making. Turn to your occupational therapist to help you with this. They can help you identify where they're at, how to move them, and how to achieve sense-making. In our previous episode, we discussed observing readiness in our child or adult with autism. Uh, in other words, to see what, that they're ready to learn. And what really struck me in this episode is that sense-making seems to be that natural next step in helping our individual process what's happening in the moment once you see that they're making that observation. That's it. That's exactly right. So the readiness is our read on when to introduce information. And as we're introducing the information in sense making, we're going to support them so that they can make contact with the idea and actually comprehend what it is that we're trying to explain to them. It's a very supportive process that starts with readiness and basically ends with sense making. We hope that you learned something today to help you on your journey with autism. We'll share more on our next Connect with Success podcast. Until then, expect success. The Success Approach is a registered service mark protected under intellectual property law. Unless otherwise specified, all music, audiovisual, 
and proprietary content shared in this podcast is property of Autism Productions, LLC, and its sister agency, Integrations Treatment Center. The use of this content is unlawful without the expressed written consent of aforementioned agency. For more information about the success approach, please go to our website at www.thesuccessapproach.org.